Welcome to the SIP Oxford podcast. I'm your host Charlotte and this week I'm here with the Director of the Literary Consultancy, Aki Schultz. Welcome Aki. Thank you very much for having me Charlotte. Yeah and uh, oh actually also congratulations on uh, being named one of the booksellers uh, 150 influential people in publishing this year. Thank you. Yeah, it was a surprise. I didn't know I was in uh, contention for it. So it was a really lovely early Christmas gift. Yes, definitely. No, it's very well deserved. So, um, yeah, lovely, lovely surprise before Christmas. <laughs> so, so you're, you're now the director of the Literary Consultancy. Um, you've had a, a number of different jobs in, in publishing over the years. So what drew you to, to publishing as, as a career path? Great question. Um, I think I wasn't actually drawn to publishing in, as a career path. I was drawn to the arts and culture sector. So when I was 16, I did a work experience, as everybody does at, in high school here in the UK, um, with an arts charity called Eastside Educational Trust, who were doing outreach work um, and arts uh, workshops and outreach things with young people in East London. And I absolutely loved it. I ended up working there later in my life. And I just knew that the art sector and helping people and working directly with people was something I wanted to do. It wasn't until later that I realised that publishing really existed. Um, so like many people in publishing, I've always read. I've always been really engaged in reading and writing. I started writing before I could really write words. I was scribbling in notebooks and pretending to write novels and things. Um, and I was a, you know, an ardent fan of reading. Visited the library every single Saturday with my mum. I'd borrow books and read while she did the, the grocery shopping. Um, but, but publishing has never occurred to me as a career. So I did literature, French and English literature at university. I graduated in the recession, um, so I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Nobody wanted me, nobody wanted to hire me, no one was interested, no one was, there were no jobs available. And I ended up temping for a long time with the NHS. Um, and it was lovely, it was secretarial and admin stuff. Then I became a PA for a consultant psychiatrist, um, did, did all sorts of things, moved through different parts of the, the, the West London Mental Health Trust um, and eventually sort of started looking at maybe working in books but I came to it kind of sideways I guess so I ended up working at Jessica Kingsley Publishers for a bit as acquisitions assistant and that's my, that was my first taste of publishing proper but previously I had other kind of books and literature related roles and now I guess at TLC I work probably adjacent to publishing rather than in publishing so we work pre-publication with writers helping them develop their their texts it's been a roundabout roundabout journey for me via dance and via translation development projects um via the mental health things via secretarial work so yeah lo lots of odd jobs along the way it sounds like a really fascinating career to have had to have kind of worked in all those different sectors um of the arts and i imagine actually you from all the different jobs you've had um though I, I imagine those have informed what you do now in publishing yeah absolutely they have there was i think the, the key really was working in an, in an arts charity to begin with so we were we were developing projects to help young people engage with the arts in ways that um might not be obvious so they, they, these weren't the kind of kids who were you know going to the theater or going to museums at weekends 
they're what used to be termed hard to reach but actually it wasn't that these people were hard to reach these were people who we, we interacted with all the time this was schools that like the school that i used to go to as a kid as well um it's just that we're not reaching them we're not we're not make, building the right bridges to get to them so this idea really at the heart of making bridges and facilitating conversations and getting people to understand creativity and storytelling in the widest sense i think i've always had this relationship with storytelling and creativity rather than just with books so it was books as objects that i was interested in as a kid wanted to be a librarian that never happened um but beyond that it was this idea of kind of everyone having that power within them um and and the beautiful connections that you can make so that arts charity work was really instrumental with that and, and at, at TLC, because we're part funded by the Arts Council, um, lots of the things that we do, we, we are a commercial company, but so much of what we do on the funded side is about making sure that anyone can have provision to professional editing services, anyone can have access to serious feedback, because that's, that's the ethos of what we do. If, if somebody wants that feedback, they shouldn't have to be um from a particular background to have it they shouldn't have to just be pre-publication and working with an editor in-house um you know it can take 10 years to write a crap book and it can take a lot of effort <laughs> and um that effort shouldn't be underestimated it can't just be dismissed so that's yeah i think a lot of the work that i've done previously has really informed that ethos i suppose yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense sort of, um how that all all flows together and it makes a lot of sense as well for all the work that you've done um, around increasing uh, book job transparency and book salaries and, and things like that and making sure that, I guess as you said, uh, previously sort of building those bridges um, where we aren't building them to try and make publishing uh, more open. Um, mm. And you've always been such a strong advocate of this was there a particular moment which made you decide that you needed um to take some action and to, and to do something about it there was i think i've always been engaged in understanding or trying to explore how ways that culture can be made inclusive whether that's organizational culture or a particular community space um, things about you know intersections of different demographic groups uh, intergenerational um, all of those sorts of things, kind of the interstices, I guess, the between spaces, that's what I've always been interested in exploring. But the, the specifics of salary transparency hadn't really occurred to me until I was creating a job role at TLC. And I thought I could benchmark what we should be offering as a, as a kind of approximate salary. I thought I could just do a, a quick bit of Googling, half an hour or so, um, see what else was out there that was in line, and I could, you know, according to the size of our business compared to other employers, I could make a guess as to what we should be offering and to my surprise several hours down the rabbit hole later i had i realized that there was nothing available there was barely any data available on um average salaries across the publishing sector and the, and the book trade sector and the more i looked the more i realized how endemic this was and obviously this is this creates enormous barriers because it's the first entry point um the, the, the book job transparency campaign which grew out of this became a real thing in 2017. Um, I'd, I'd been thinking about it beforehand, but I didn't realize there was a need for activism, I suppose, around it. Um, and, and partly this has got to do with my own privilege, having blinded me to the fact that there was this clear barrier 
which is preventing so many people from entering because why, why would you why would you apply for a job why would you take a risk on a job where you don't know what you're going to be paid um and so so the campaign started when i kind of falling down this rabbit hole further and doing some statistical analysis because that's what i love to do love numbers and data mm -hmm. i realized that uh, well on average under a quarter of so under 25 percent of the job ads across the art sector have or the, the literature sectors should i say have salaries advertised, but within publishing, if you're looking at within trade publishing, it's actually somewhere near a 10% and less. It's pretty dismal. Um, so so that, that's, that's where it started and that's where I thought, you know, in terms of who we're letting in, I'm also interested in, you know, who, who are the people applying to these roles versus who are the people working in these roles in-house. I suspect if you did demographic analysis of the applicant pool versus people working in-house, there'd be massive discrepancies. And this is just one of the barriers, but it's one where I felt there was a practical solution, which was try and campaign for publishers to make a sole practical positive commitment to make all of their entry levels, you know, job ads um, include a salary. It makes such perfect sense that you kind of wonder how publishing has gotten away with this for so long, that it's, it's, not, it's not including salaries and I think from my experience when I started in publishing applying for jobs I'd always I'd tell I tell my mum oh, I'm applying for x job and her qu first question would always be well what does it pay well I don't know <laughs> um which just seems mad really um completely mad um but on a on a more positive note um, a lot of publishers are starting to open up a bit more, I guess, about um, about their internal roles. And um, uh, Penguin Random House and most recently Hachette have um, put out some more guidelines about how they're going to make their roles more transparent to people wanting to apply, which is obviously um, really good. So how how do you think that we are progressing now in comparison to before the book job transparency campaign i think there's been an acceleration and there's also been an acceleration in the last sort of year and a half so the campaign's been going since 2017 and it's been a mix of you know we've, we've set up a website we're working on a survey which has been delayed because surveying people about the current job situation during a pandemic what you're going to see is lots of data being skewed by the fact that there aren't so many jobs available by the fact that um we're not able to go into offices so from a kind of um research ethics or, or data standpoint it's quite difficult to, to launch something like that um but 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 there have been other movements as well and we're not the first i have to say we're not the first to be looking at this you know suzanne collar at book careers has been looking at salaries um for 20 odd years um and she has a, a yearly salary survey it, it's not open access and it is um more trade focused and i think what i wanted to look at was something that was a more open access and really pushing and campaigning and challenging and saying actually it's not just a nice to have this is an essential part of showing that you're an inclusive sector and that this is something that where you genuinely welcome people in there's a lot of frankly there's a lot of lip surface in publishing you know we're definitely open look at our wonderful beautiful brilliant lists and look at how lovely we are and publishing is full of lovely people doing lovely things who are very well meaning but the moment you say, well, hang on, how, why, how come this list isn't that diverse? Or how many people working in-house are, are black in this department? And people just, like, all the doors shut. 
everyone battens down the hatches. Nobody wants to say anything. Um, people get really upset. So it's been an interesting process. Um, it's been a, a mix of kind of public campaigning, which has met some resistance. I think the idea of, you know, we've had people, um, I've had people shouting at me in my DMs. I've had a six in the morning rant from somebody in the publishing industry about this um, being quite aggressive and, and quite abusive. You know, you're, you're upsetting people. Why don't you go after the big companies and not the smaller companies? And I just think well, public accountability is a really important part of this. And actually, there have been so many people who've been brilliant at being challenged. You know, we always say, and I always say, please, if you're using my hashtag, the book job transparency hashtag, to point out places where there is no salary advertised, just ask them, could you please, in the interests of inclusivity and in the interests of being more welcoming, pop the salary on there? And the, the best reaction you can have is someone saying, oh, good point, great, and changing it. There's no friction there. <laughs> There's no need for an argument. Um, but there have there have been there have been um, challenges to that, and and it's that on the on the public facing side, which I think is important because it's not a it's not a name and shame campaign. This is making people more aware because the, otherwise, what happens is we're blindly, well-meaningly sharing job ad after job ad after job ad with no salary, with no salary, with no salary. There's complicity in that. There is, and every person saying, "I can't possibly make a change. I, I've got nothing to do with this." If everyone does that, there's blanket silence and there's no change. Whereas the moment you say, oh, actually, I haven't been aware of that. Hi, here's our HR person. I'll put you in touch by email. And you start having these conversations. You realize that some people are just not aware of it and they're willing to change. Or they think, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Let's, let's have a go at that. Or there are frank conversations about, listen, actually, the salary is pretty low. And that's the reason why we don't do it. And then you have to say, well, well if you're ashamed to put the salary on this job description there is something wrong with putting this out so you start to uncover all of these things going on and sometimes it's much more simple than people think they just say oh great i'll just whack on the 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 salary we know that publishing doesn't pay huge amounts i have never ever been in it for saying this needs to be twice as much this needs to be much higher i'm actually not not at the moment that interested in having that conversation um, but but I think more and more people are realizing that this this secrecy is is um, not just slightly mad, like we were saying earlier, but it's um, it's exclusive and it's excluding, uh, and and things are starting to change. So that you know, Hachette and PRH coming out and having salary transparency policies through twenty twenty one is a huge coup, um, and it's really testament to people pushing and saying actually we do deserve for, for this to be more open. Um, so I feel I feel really hopeful actually about the changes being made. I feel really optimistic. With such giants like PRH and Hachette having come out with these um, with these policies around um, book job transparency, do you think that that's do you think that kind of marks a bit of a turning point? Do you think that other publishers will follow? I hope so. Yeah, I, I think that, that you know, sea changes is genuinely happening in a way that it maybe hasn't happened before. And the moment it, you know, we're, we're in such a there are huge um, there are companies that are just so much bigger in publishing. You know, people there there are only sort of four or five companies that have the lion's share of, of the market. And so the moment two of them decide that they want to go. Uh, start developing policies around salary transparency. I have absolutely no doubt that behind the scenes of the rest, they're also doing the same. Um, you know, uh, uh, 
somebody wants to be a leader in one area and the others will follow partly it's best practice partly it's competition isn't it i mean that that's definitely definitely mm. a part of it i'd like it ideally just to be best practice that that um spurs people into action but if if it's competition that does then the action is still happening and i'm, and I'm still happy with that but there are other things going on you know there's been there's been so much in the uk and the us the publishing paid me uh, campaign also kind of looked at exposing differences and advances um, between authors of different cultural backgrounds um, and when you're thinking about output kind of creative output books that, that are being produced you have to think about who's behind the scenes making those decisions and you know we can't we're, we're really focused as we rightly should be on diverse output you know who, whose stories are we telling and hearing and selling and who's reading them um, but but behind the scenes, who's making those decisions? That that group of people needs to be just as diverse, needs to be just as reflective of the world that we live in. We're not there yet, but I think genuinely there are so many things going on now and so many advocates and allies in all areas, not just for salary transparency, but for all kinds of other, other things going on. But it's a really exciting time. And I do, I do think there's a, a change happening in a, in a more fundamental systemic way. And what's critical as well is that, that, you know, I always think about long-term change and when we think about people coming into publishing, we need to be thinking about retention. Like, what are these people staying for and why are people leaving if they're leaving? And who are the people leaving? Who are the people being disadvantaged? But what I feel much more positive about now is that, you know, some of the bigwigs aren't going to care. They're probably going to hear me talking about the job transparency and thinking, God, there's that woman again banging on about this thing that we don't care about or whatever I'm not, I'm not that fussed to be honest you know there, there are going to be people who find me incredibly annoying and a bit of a thorn inside but the people who are coming in to publishing for the first time who do know about the campaign who do believe in inclusive practices um who are thinking about kind of ethical ways to be in publishing they're the ones who in 10 15 20 years time are going to be at the top and if if that message has got through to them that's our job done, I think. As you say, it's if you get if you get sort of people coming in on on the bottom level uh, on board with with the campaign, it might take it might take time, but we will get there, <laughs> um, which is yeah. always a positive thing. There are so many uh, issues in publishing around um, uh, diversity and inclusion, which are all kind of linked to uh, to, to salaries and and other things like that but what would or is there anything in particular that you would like to see uh, publishers uh, doing going forward to be more transparent and accessible and to attract the diverse groups of people that we need to have working in publishing yeah, I think there's a lot being done already. And I think there is a lot of um, genuine, genuine kind of goodwill. Um, so uh, and this is, I think, what also people get wrong sometimes. They think that um, the activists are kind of complaining and it's all out with the old and in with the new. And, and that's not really my focus at all, because, you know, the, back, the, the history of publishing and the reasons it is how it is, the kind of strange um, <laughs> economic structures... All of that knowledge is a, is a huge asset and, and we can't kind of throw it away and rebuild it because I think it's in slightly too fragile a state for that. But what we can certainly do is 
combine our thinking and, and think how do we honor what has gone before and how do we make what comes next even better and and really i'm, I'm circling back to this thing this thing this thing about retention because there have been schemes before you know there have been training ships since the 80s and, and before then for getting people from so-called minority backgrounds into publishing but you can't make them stay if the system you're feeding them into will only accept them if they fit a mold that's because then you start to get a kind of what I call the United Colors Benetton effect. You have kind of a, po a lovely poster of who works in publishing, but then if you personality test them, or if you look at uh, class demographics, or if you look at where they all grew up, you'll find that they're still really circling around very similar groups and very similar communities. And so we get this, um, this surface level kind of concession to what diversity looks like but it's it's got to be about inclusive culture and transparency is right at the top of that list so transparency around what are the jobs available in publishing how do we get that out there to people who are younger and thinking about career options you know i'm i'm from a middle class lower middle class but still middle class background um you know lots of arts and culture access all the time museums galleries everything and yet i had absolutely no idea what any of the jobs in publishing were I knew nothing about what skills I needed to go into which departments and which jobs. I vaguely knew about editing, and that was about it. And um, it, it, it's astonishing to me that this, there isn't more being done at kind of schools level um, to, to think about career paths. And also outside, you know, all of the departments, there are so many things where we could be leading with saying, what is your skill set? What are your competencies? Therefore, which of these departments might you fit into really, really well? Often we just go with this kind of slightly romanticized idea of um, whatever I do, eventually I want to be an editor because that's kind of the only job that anyone outside of publishing imagines exists. But there's so, there's so much there that goes into putting books and stories together. So a bit more transparency on what those jobs actually need, what the day-to-day -day of them means. Um, and then some some skills building, especially in editing, actually, because so at TLC we do kind of editing training, um, and we've we've done some partnerships with PCC, um, and we're developing a, a kind of training model at the moment for what we call ethical editing, um, that we're hoping that publishers might be interested in, but certainly we'll be using for our freelancers. Um, so kind of skills skills training, so that it's less intuitive. I think people kind of imagine that they. They're, they're just chosen and selected because they're a certain kind of person. And, and that's crap, really. I mean, you can learn to be good at Excel. <laughs> you can learn to be whizzy at InDesign. You can learn to, all of these things can be offered to people to, to, to kind of build more of a level playing field. Um, and again, it's, it starts with being transparent about what's available, how you get in, um, what you do once you're there, and what a career path actually looks like. Some of that might look like a career progression course. Um, but what, what does it mean once you're in? Um, and, and what are the exciting bits? You know, the bits that everyone um, loves. Um, I, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. I'd love to hear kind of more of that being made much more transparent and accessible. And the schemes and the initiatives will continue. You know, there's always going to be more schemes and initiatives. There are always going to be committees in-house set up by really go-getting people. Um, and I happen to know that I share some of those committees and groups were instrumental in getting this salary transparency policy put over because there are people who on the LGBTQ committee who've been campaigning and saying this is part of what, what how we would feel valued so those kind of conversations around talking to your staff being in dialogue 
um, and transparent with them, even if that's not made public. Um, there's transparency that can operate on all levels in publishing. Just to make people feel welcomed and to feel like they're able to stay and able to grow in that environment and able to flourish. That's what anyone wants. When I dreamed of uh, working in publishing, my first go-to was, obviously, as we said, I'm going to work in editorial. And having now worked with uh, editors quite closely, editorial is not at all what I thought it was from the outside. So it it kind of shows, it really highlights, as you say, that kind of the romanticised idea of what what publishing is and the number of times that people ask me also do you just sit around reading books all day because <laughs> this kind of fundamental misunderstanding about what publishing is mm. and actually through this podcast this year I've done a number of episodes with people from various departments talking about what what they do on a day-to-day -day basis and after four years of working in publishing I finally have a basic understanding of what happens in production. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's quite a, shocking, really, that it's taken me that long. Yeah, yeah, it takes ages, doesn't it? And, and if you're in a bigger publishing house as well, the departments might be much more siloed. So if you're somewhere indie, it's likely that you'll be working cross-departmentally a lot, and, and maybe one person in several departments <laughs> if you're in a smaller publishing house. But the bigger you get, the more corporate you get. Um, the more likely it is you'll be sticking to your department. And I think that kind of interdepartment learning um, is critical, but it's very easy for it to drop off the list of priorities if you're just working furiously in one, in one really tiny area. Um, but that understanding how it all fits together. You know, I don't, I don't know how it all fits together still. I would love to do kind of shadowing of, of a couple of different um, roles, uh, you know, a bit, a bit, bit more kind of skill sharing and knowledge sharing. And that's why, you know, that's why people love podcasts and, and things that take them behind the scenes and, and that, that stuff that we imagine is boring, like what do you do on an average day? Well, I don't know what that looks like for someone in particular departments and I would, I'd love to hear it. And it might be that one thing that sparks you and says, and you think, oh, my God, I didn't know that existed, but I, I reckon I'd be really good at that. You know, how do I get a, a foot in, in there? That's really exciting, I think. And I think that as well, I think there's also a lot of, um, particularly with publishing jobs there's a lot of misconceptions that you have to have already done the job in order to be able to apply for it when actually there's a lot of a lot of roles in publishing that particularly entry-level roles where if you've been working in say an admin job you might already have a lot of skills um, that are relevant I think that perhaps publishing needs to do a better job of of opening those doors up and saying you don't have to already have done a year's worth of internships in editorial in order to apply for an editorial assistant job absolutely it's a, it's a really great point actually charlotte and um you know I, one of the somebody tweeted about this yesterday actually i think when they said god when you know what is with these entry level roles saying requires XYZ experience that you, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. Like I want to get the experience or get the first an entry level role, but to get an entry level role, you need the experience first. And you just go round and round in this kind of nightmare 
Um, but And I think that there's space for something else. I don't quite know what that looks like. Maybe if there are any publishers listening, they, they would come up with some ideas. There could be, you know, some really useful way of, like I said before, skills training so that you have a kind of introductory basic skills that you need in publishing day that you can pop on your CV um, where that, that doesn't require you to commit to kind of two, three, four weeks more than that um, interning. Interning can be really valuable. Um, work experience can be really valuable. So I've had discussions about this, especially through the Book Job Transparency campaign where people are saying, coming to me privately, I get lots of kind of emails and DMs and people through the website asking questions. Uh, you know, what's your stance on internships and work experience? I think work experience can be really good for skills building. But for me, work experience means learning. It doesn't mean working. So work experience is getting experience of a job. And really, you shouldn't be doing that for more than a week. That might be through a school or university or whatever. But that's something the employer is giving to you. The moment you go beyond that, you start working and, and therefore you start moving into kind of internship territory. And internship territory is where you're working and learning on the job and where I think you need to start being paid at living wage minimum. And if you're based in London, at London living wage minimum, which has just gone up this year to 10.85 an hour. Um, and there are all the, I really, the Living Wage Foundation website, everybody going into any sector of work needs to uh, familiarise themselves with the current rates um, and, and really get, get clued up about what what that means and what you should be being paid i in unpaid internships should should be illegal in my view and um are the bane of uh i, I just think it's just moronic for anybody claiming to be an inclusive imprint of whatever also happening to offer unpaid internships or or work experience where you get like a box of chocolates for six months work <laughs> it's it's horrible um, and perpetuates all kinds of um, awful privilege systems that oppress lots of other people and, and keep people out that, that we need in. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it sounds like it's not something out of a horrible dystopian novel, really. Here, have a, have a box of chocolates for six months of, of, of work. It's just ridiculous that that, that, that has ever been a thing. Um, I'm not sure a box of chocolates is that well. I've been I've been at an event where a box of chocolates was was recommended in lieu of a fee, and I um was I was like absolutely not. That's not happening. Um, and I know of festivals that pay in champagne. Also think that deserves a fee. Definitely deserves a fee. Um, but but there are there are kind of more subtle ways that this happens as well. So there there are these. Where, the, where there's a bit of a fine line is with this kind of, um, you know, in exchange for working for us, you'll get loads of access to these free things. And I just think be careful of those because some of them might genuinely be useful if you're working within a specific time period and it's limited. If it's a rolling kind of freelancy type deal whereby you're getting some free workshops and some perks and whatever but you're still not getting any pay and that goes on for months you get into your basically freelancing for this person you should have a fee you should have a fair fee so there are times when skills sharing or swapping can be really great um often where it's time limited or it's a one-off and you say right i can do this for you you can do that for me it's an equal exchange do that with peers with friends or whatever if you're in an employment situation i don't think that should be happening is there any advice that you would give to 
people looking to get into publishing, looking at these entry roles, for how they can best essentially navigate this, what can sometimes, as you said, be quite a fraught um, environment around finding out salaries for for jobs and, and getting and getting that experience. Yeah, I think that's, it's a really good question. So ways to get experience and, and ways to approach getting a job. I think while you're looking for a job, you should be also thinking about gaining the kind of experiences that might be useful. So whilst you, you're maybe not, if you can find paid internships, and they do exist, have a look out there. And there are loads of lists online and, and, and places like the SLP will also have resources, the Publishers Association um, and other places. So do look for paid opportunities and do look for other opportunities that genuinely feel like they would be enriching for you. There are things that you can attend that will give you insight if somebody who is working in an, in an area that you're interested in is speaking at something at the moment we've got lots of digital events where you can hear them speak you can ask questions you can be part of that conversation to, to gain some insight kind of um, sideways if you will um, uh, look at membership communities that you might want to be a part of things like the SYP for instance um, or you know book machine or other places that bring people together who are looking at things um, places like the publishing post which is a magazine made by publishing hopefuls showcasing their skills and talents because it's a magazine and it's beautifully produced you know if you're part of the production team of that or if you're part of the editorial team or the marketing team or whatever it's another thing for your cv so building stuff for your cv that isn't just related to getting that job keep that going in the background because it's all useful for you whilst keeping a check on your um your well-being and your kind of creative energy i think one thing we don't talk about enough is that it can be extremely overwhelming or we do talk about how it's overwhelming, but we then don't say, you know, to people, there are times when you don't, when you don't do it. <laughs> there, it's time, there are times when it's okay not to apply for this. There are times when it's okay to say, right, what I need is a contract that's going to get me some money for the next six months so that I am all right and able to survive, after which I can look for something in the sector that I want and in the meantime get the experience um, that, that I need. But don't be ashamed of thinking, you know, I've failed if you don't land that job immediately. It's a really tough market. Um, there are very few jobs available at entry level. And, you know, just, just the other day, I saw a literary agency assistant role that had 700 plus applications. So it's huge for huge investors. And then, like we've discussed at the beginning of this podcast, casting your net widely, but being focused. So it's about, realistically, what are the different departments? What are the different roles? Is this an area that you, that you actually would be really suited to? Perhaps it's a little less subscribed in some of the more popular areas. And, and do it if you really think that you'd be excited by it and you'd be good at it. Don't do it because you want to slide into a different department from somewhere else. Don't think, oh, I'll just get this because no one's going to apply for that and I may as well and maybe it will get me my dream job later. Whatever you apply to, your application will absorb the enthusiasm that you have for that. So it's better to pick kind of five things that you would really like and feel excited by, where you're going to write an authentically powerful covering letter and a really great, relevant-looking CV with all your transferable skills properly listed. You're much more likely to have a chance of a bite with something like that than a kind of scattergun apply to just anything um, approach, which, which may result in kind of 20 rejection letters all at once, which is also really bad for your mental health. Um, and it's unfocused and it, and it doesn't help you 
So kind of finding that focus, but casting on it wide in terms of what are all of the possible available jobs. And don't forget that book, the book trade isn't just publishing, it's related roles. So there's also author services, that's the kind of area that TLC sits in, um, and other, other, other ways and means to work with books and work with authors. I think that sounds like a perfect bit of advice uh, to, to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Aki. It has genuinely been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, not a problem. Um, and uh, I hope that you have all enjoyed this episode of the FYP Oxford podcast. And we hope to see you all again very soon. Make sure you stay up to date with all things SYP Oxford by following us on Twitter at SYP underscore Oxford and on Instagram as well. If email is more your thing, we also have a monthly newsletter that comes out that you can sign up to on the SYP website. Just visit the SYP.org.uk and sign up there. We hope to hear from you all very, very soon.